And welcome to our campus on this Monday afternoon, where we go inside your college campus and get insight from you, the fans. I'm your host, Jerry Mackman, and I hope you all had a better Saturday than Alabama, Duke, and James Madison fans. Ever since Texas and Oklahoma announced that they were bolting for the Big 12 to the SEC, conference realignments have shaken up the landscape of college sports forever. Now conference realignment has to an extent now conference realignment has to an extent damaged the landscape of college sports and hurt some of the smaller schools in the process. From the two Los Angeles schools switching from the West Coast to, to the Midwest, you'd have to back to the Big Ten. It's also worth noting, though, that when the TV contracts for college football first started up in the 1950s, that the, that the only media companies around back then, CBS, NBC, and ABC, lot, made it a lot easier back then, you know, because it was before the streaming services, before the ESPNs, the Fox, the conference of the school-affiliated networks. But the media companies held the most power in, this, in these negotiations because in order for the schools to generate positive revenue, they had to get their games on TV, not just rely on ticket sales. But now, times have changed. Schools have big donors, athletic foundations, and, well, there's also more than three TV channels. Blue Bud schools that have created a national and sometimes international brand don't necessarily need these TV contracts. Also, look at all the options offered for watching football games. On your phone, computer, smart TV, cable, streaming services, you know, Amazon Prime has Thursday Night Football, you know, and they've done a great job with it with Kirk Herbstreit and, and Kaylee Hartung on the broadcast. Um, ESPN Plus has been broadcasting football and basketball and volleyball games for over two years now. The times have changed and athletic departments across the country need to listen. You don't have to bow down to the networks. You have enough money and donors to chart your own course. First off, congratulations to Colorado for winning their first game of the season. The trend this year in this ongoing coaching carousel has been to fire your struggling coach, write a big check, and go on a winning streak. Ask Georgia Tech, Nebraska, and now Colorado how that's going for them. Auburn, y'all need, Auburn, y'all need to take notice. Alright, so that was a lot, but moving on to our Week 7 recap of college football. And it was an interesting one, with six AP Top 25 matchups, a 16-year drought broken, Auburn actually looking competitive in a football game for once, and a raucous student section in Salt Lake City. First game up here, of course, y'all guys all saw this, I'm sure. Alabama at Tennessee. Took 16 years for the Vols to knock off the tide, but boy, it was worth it. Go post in the Tennessee River, cigar celebration for the ages, and right there, that shot of the field storming and the orange fireworks going off. That's what makes college football special. No other sport can bring people together like college football can. Tennessee, y'all guys can consider me a convert after Saturday night. Guys, if you haven't already, donate to the fund for Tennessee to buy a new goalpost. I already have because why not? It's for a good cause. You know, if a team that beats Alabama is, wins my heart over. You can find the link to donate at volstarter.utk.edu. But now on to my analysis of this one. Tennessee came out firing in the first half with 16 years of anger and resentment pumping through their veins. Hayden Hooker and Jalen Hyatt were absolutely electric combining for 592 yards and 10 touchdowns. Alabama, on the other hand, they need to rethink its defensive approach after this one with a tough schedule awaiting them. And Old Miss, among other SEC West contingents, still on deck, and the air raid coming to Tuscaloosa this Saturday as well. But look, the Bama fans want to blame Bill O'Brien for this game? Yes, he's not Sark, and he never will be. Nobody can replace those rosters and that offensive system. But he did a really good job of, of play calling, where in the past he's faltered. Sure, the kickers missed 50 yard or hurt, but your defense could have easily made that stand to send the game to overtime. All you had to do was hold him for 14 seconds, and he couldn't even do that. I surely thought that this game was going, going to go to overtime. But give Bama credit for fighting back after being down big in the first quarter. This is not something we've seen from Bama this year, and I thought that they would crumble to the pressure. 
But I'll take a Vol win any day. My prediction was Vols by 7 and the 1 by 3. And yes, it was a program defining win. Right now, Rocky Top to the playoffs and the SEC title game. And quite frankly, they should also be ranked number one in the AP poll. Georgia really hasn't played anybody. Next one, moving on, it was a fun one in Utah. USC at Utah. Utah bounced back in a big way after losing to UCLA by double digits the week before. The Utes and Cam Rising fought back and forth against Alex Grinch's defense. For Utah, finding a way to win the game after going down 21-7 in the first half was a nice change after struggling in losses to Florida and UCLA. But more importantly, the win came while wearing hand-painted helmets celebrating fallen teammates Aaron Lowe and Ty Jordan, something that Kincaid found himself emotional about after the game. Kincaid said heading into this game that I said heading into this game that the Utes' ball control would win them this game, and it did. The Trojans received just four drives in the second half as the Utes held onto the ball for more than 18 minutes and 43 plays to keep USC's high-powered offense on the sideline. The Trojans scored touchdowns on two of their first three drives of the half, and after the Utes scored a two-point conversion, USC punted once. That's all it took for Utah to take a lead. It would not surrender. The best plan for the teams is to limit USC's high-powered offense is to simply keep it on the sideline. Now, the implications for the Pac-12 title race is what makes this game interesting. USC had playoff hopes and was considered a contender by some. With this loss, though, they won't find anyone backing them for the playoffs except diehard fans. Utah's win gives them a tiebreaker advantage over the Trojans because they only have one conference loss to UCLA. The Trojans have not played their LA neighbors yet. Earning a tiebreaker could make all the difference in the Pac-12 title race as the league moves to a divisionless setup for deciding a champion. Next one. Oklahoma State at TCU. A double overtime thriller in the Metroplex on the second field storming at Amon G. Carter Stadium. And we're down to one unbeaten in the Big 12, folks. And that's a team that was picked to finish seventh in the preseason media polls in TCU. Really, that's all that really goes to tell you is that that preseason media polls, whatnot, doesn't really matter. But anyways, uh, the way that Oklahoma State, they have to change the way that they run their offense. Running your quarterback will constantly fail. And it and it showed towards the end of the second half and the fourth quarter. I mean, everybody in the building knew that number three was going to get the ball, making it very easy for an already ball-hawking TCU defense. Sanders was responsible for 149 yards of total offense in the first quarter, but he mustered just 168 yards over the next three quarters and the two overtime periods. He finished 16 of 36 for 245 yards, a touchdown and an interception. He rushed 11 times for 68 yards and two scores, and he was sacked twice. The things were clicking for Sanders. He was connecting with John Paul Richardson. The sophomore led the Cowboys receivers with five catches for 51 yards and a score. But what I like from the Frogs, though, is that they didn't quit early on. And right there, that's a testament to the culture that Sonny Dykes is building in Fort Worth, and that's something you wouldn't have seen in the latter years of Gary Patterson. Max Duggan and his receiving core? It's like something switched at halftime, whether it was an inspirational speech, a spur-of-the-moment decision, or honestly just some grace from the football gods. But regardless, TCU and Oklahoma State need to deploy the 24-hour rule with top 25 teams coming to their places next Saturday. Last game here of our recap, and this was very surprising. Auburn at Old Miss. Old Miss's running game was a big reason that Hotty Toddy, they're now 7-0 with 448 rushing yards. And Old Miss's rush de- rushing defense and defense in general has always been bad, but this is without a doubt the worst I've seen at Old Miss defense. Letting Auburn score this many points on you should not have been attainable, but you know what? Get, let's give some credit to Brian Harson and company for putting up a competitive fight. For Old Miss, the offense is spectacular, but it needs to get a whole lot better if you want to compete in the SEC West if you don't have any defense. For the Tigers, you already missed your chance to be respected, but if you do some trickery, maybe you get ball eligible. Moving on to our Week 8 preview in college football. First game up, number 20 Texas at number 11 Oklahoma State. 
The Pokes come into this game coming off a heartbreaker and double overtime to the Horn Frogs. However, their season is still very much in their own control, but this has to start Saturday with beating the Horns. Your it's homecoming in Stillwater, and you already know Stillwater, Boone Pickett Stadium, and Eskimo Joe's will be rocking as the town increases from 50,000 to 200,000 overnight due to homecoming. And the hate that Texas gets on the road increased even more with UT bolting for the SEC, leaving schools like Oklahoma State in the dust. The Horns need to win out in order to be having a shot at playing in Arlington. This should be a fun one, though, but Quinn Ewers needs to play a lot better than he did last week against Iowa State. Sure, he had three passing touchdowns, but he only had 170 yards. And also, some of those throws were very questionable. Missing screen passes to your running backs, misses, missing three deep shots to your tight end. Now, the Texas defense on third downs, they were awful Saturday. Oklahoma State needs to exploit that constantly to get out to a hot start. Mike Gundy also needs a new offensive strategy, though, as running backs, as running Spencer Sanders, every play doesn't work. His defense doesn't need work. Their errors in the second half, I really think, were in part to them having to be on the field constantly with no rest. All that being said, though, this will be a mid-range scoring battle, probably in the range of 28 to 35 points scored for each team. Sark will need to block out the rat poison of Texas being favored by six, which, let's be honest, should not even be happening. Pokes, backs by... Pokes bounce back by seven. Next one here, it's a battle in the ACC. Number 14, Syracuse at number five, Clemson. Syracuse surprised a lot of people last Saturday, beating NC State 24-9, but they have a tough, have a tough test coming up for them in red-hot DJ Ugalele and the Tigers' first-round defensive line. I think it'll be a close one in the first half, but the magic runs out for the orange. The Tigers are just too good in advance to not lose this one. Clemson by 14. Next one, it's a thriller in the Pac-12. The Hills of Oregon College Game Day coming to Oregon in the Pac-12 for the first time this year. It's number 9 UCLA at number 10 Oregon. UCLA rides into Eugene hot off a four-game winning streak. Dorian Thompson-Robinson, he really needs to get creative to avoid pressure from the Dan Lanning defense that has become absolutely electric. You saw what he did at Georgia, and now you're seeing that happening at Oregon. Bo Nix has done okay at Oregon, but we really haven't seen that it factor from him yet except the BYU game. But what that tells me, though, is in big-time moments, Bo Nix and Oregon steps up when they need to. And I really think that it's too much momentum going for the Bruins, and that gets to their heads. Oregon, by three. Moving on to this week in NIL. Uh, so, our first deal up, Puma signed 10 women athletes from Pepperdine, UCLA, and USC to celebrate the International Day of the Girl. Puma teamed up with 10 soccer players, golfers, and basketball players through an NIL deal to celebrate the International Day of the Girl. Of the girl. As part of the agreement, each athlete was given Puma apparel and paid for, for their time working at the clinic. The deal was brokered by Marketplace. As part of the deal, the 10 players helped Puma host its first ever clinic, celebrating the International Day of the Girl. The clinic took place last week at the Boys and Girls Club of William Mead in, in West San Gabriel Valley. The athletes acted as coaches for about 100 girls from the 6th to 10th grade. Dakota Crawford and Marketplace told on 3NIL in a statement, These 10 competitors came together along with professional women athletes to run a clinic teaching soccer, basketball, and golf skills. The Boys and Girls Club of, Mead, of William Mead said that the girls were thankful for the opportunity to learn from the college stars. The organization said that the student-athletes provided the girls with diverse backgrounds and family connections all over the world to learn about the importance of being a female athlete. Next one here, uh, nine college football players signed deals with Candy Sweet Futures NFT. The Sweet Futures NFT program was launched last year as one of the first opportunities for college football players to use their NIL in the digital collective space. Focused on creating officially licensed NFTs, the Sweet Futures program has 17 players this year. Starting Thursday, fans can access memorabilia for eight new athletes. Braylon Allen of Wisconsin, JT Daniels of West Virginia, JaQuincy McKinstry of Alabama, Malachi Moore of Alabama, Zay Flowers of Boston College, Seven Banks of LSU, Micah Pittman of Florida State, and Noah Selwell of Oregon, and Sam Hartman of Wake Forest 
Well, I'll have NFTs featuring their NIL go live this afternoon. This follows September's drop, which included B. John Robinson of Texas, Talua Tagavaloa of Maryland, DJ Ugalele of Clemson, Josh Downs of North Carolina, Jaden Housewood of Arkansas, Donald Smith of Georgia, and Bo Nix of Oregon, and Jack Beach of LSU. Fans can purchase $20 for one icon or at a seven-pack of random icons for $125. Collectible holders will have the ability to win prizes such as, a, as two all-inclusive tickets to the season's Rose Bowl and additional NFTs. I don't know about y'all, but those two tickets to the Rose Bowl sounds like a pretty good deal. I would get on those for you. And now moving on to our failures of the week. And we got some newcomers here. Pete Golding, Alabama defense coordinator. You know, you allowed 52 points to a rival in a scoring drive in 14 seconds? Come on now. Bama still has the top SEC defense, but that's also a stretch because the only team that really plays defense in the SEC, in my opinion, is Kentucky. Alabama's defense, they're a major liability for Saban to reach the top of the mountain again. He needs to consider making changes to, a def- to his, either his defensive staff or his scheme before it's too late. Next one up here, uh, moving on to the Big 12, Mike Yurchich, the Oklahoma State offensive coordinator. Running the same plays over and over and over again with no trick plays or even intentions to try to line up and change them, and a loss in the same week? Yep, well, that's just Mike Yurchich for you. He's failed everywhere he's gone, quite frankly. Ask Texas and Penn State how his one-year stint worked out. You have some decent playmakers on the offense. Open some things open some things up, or else Sanders might end up in the medical tent more often than we want to see him. And really, with the way you've seen developments of football gone these last couple of weeks, you know, quarterback safety, that's something that they really need to increase. And for the health of their quarterback, they need to do that. They need to have him on the field less. Now, our last one here, we're moving on to a player. Quinn Ewers, the quarterback for Texas. Um, you know, Quinn did very, very well in the Alabama game. Did very well in the Oklahoma game. Of course, he didn't play against any defense in the Oklahoma game. But, you know, he still had to go out there and make the throws. But um, I got to tell you, yes, he was playing the conference's best defense. but you still should have passed for more than 170 yards. You still should have hit those dump-offs to the running backs. And when you had three guys wide open and you can't hit them, come on now. And you also have, you know, it's like, you know, they just kept going to Xavier Worthy all the time, and it's like, you can't drop another play. You know that Iowa State's going to be sending all their guys at your best receiver. Create some more trickery for you. Anyways, moving on to uh, my predictions now for the Heisman race. You know, we're kind of getting to that midway point of the season, so we're going to talk about the Heisman race and then move on to my playoff predictions. Right now, I got uh, Hendon Hooker, quarterback for the Vols. This one really needs no explanation. Uh, this one really needs no explanation as the Vols and Hooker, they I mean, they've done absolutely fantastic. You know, I mean, he does everything for them. Runs well, passes well. Seth Screenwell, he's got the team around him. He puts up great stats. He just had five passing touchdowns for over 370 yards against Alabama's defense. Um, and, I mean, he's really, you know, I think he's, quite frankly, I think he's the second coming of Peyton Manning in Knoxville. But, anyways, moving on to a guy who I think is very underrated and I think should be starting to receive a lot of respect is Max Duggan, quarterback at TCU. Has the highest QBR rating for a quarterback in the Big 12 right now. Completes 70% of his passes. His team's also undefeated. Um... And it also helps, you know, with the Heisman, you know, if you go back and look at Heisman history, there's only one Heisman winner that ended up on a team with with a losing record. Um, so, you know, it definitely helps me. It definitely helps these players if their teams are undefeated or have a, have, have a good winning record. Uh, but Duggan, you know, I mean, he's done really, really well this year. Um, you know, he's gone for over 300 yards in every single game he's played in. Um, and it also helps, you know, he's hitting his receiving core really well. The offense is flowing really well. Um but he's got a tough schedule coming up, and he's going to need to keep and he's and he's going to need to keep his foot on the gas in order to keep himself in the Heisman race. 
Next up, this guy, he's been floating in the Heisman race last year, but um, I still kind of think it warrants him still being in there. Bijan Robinson, running back for Texas. Um, I mean, he really does it all for UT. Um, they would have lost the game at um, last week against Iowa State had, the, had it not been for Bijan. Um, and really, they would have lost a lot of games last year had it not been for Bijan. I mean, he is the heart and soul of this offense. You know, I mean, he makes cuts looking like Reggie Bush or looking like a guy in a Madden game. Um, it's really, uh, it's really neat to see him run. You know, I mean, it's just, it's something out of a video game. Honestly, watching Bijan, I mean, he's a man among boys. And when you go see him on that field, he goes from zero to 102 seconds. Uh, next up, Blake Corum, running back from Michigan. Um, did very, very well against Penn State uh, this week. It, it also did very, very well uh, in the games against other ranked opponents. Uh, did real well against Maryland as well. Um, he's had uh, um, over 150 yards each game um, and two touchdowns. But um, Michigan, they really also been they they they've been really trying to implement more rushing offense, um, and you're seeing that with Corum's results. Moving on now to my player predictions. Number one, Tennessee. Uh, this really should be no, of no surprise people. I mean, people are saying, oh, no, oh, now why not have Georgia at one? Well, guess what? Well, Georgia hasn't played anybody. Alabama's failed, and Ohio State hasn't played anybody either. Tennessee is really the only team on this list right here that has played really good opponents and beaten them as well. Next up, Ohio State, number two. You know, I mean, I just think they're too good of a team, you know, and they've beaten their you know, all the teams they've had. Sure, they haven't played anybody, but, I mean, they're still very, very good, and quite frankly, they'll end up making the playoff either way. Uh, number three, Michigan. Uh, you know, you took down Penn State last week, and, you know, and you played consistently well. Um, it should be a setup with Ohio State, which I think they'll end up losing that one, but still, there's still, I think, there's still be a good chance where you have two Big Ten teams in the playoff with the way the Pac-12's looking. Um, and then finally, fourth, yeah, you know what, why not go ahead and put them in there, defending national champions. Put Georgia in there. Uh, anyways, for everyone here at On Campus, I'm Jerry Mackman, and may you soak in all the football games this weekend.